Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by my friends over at ChopC60.com. If you haven't heard of Carbon 60 or otherwise called C60 before, it is a powerful Nobel Prize winning antioxidant that helps to optimize mitochondrial function, fights inflammation, and neutralizes toxic free radicals. I'm a huge fan of using C60 in conjunction with a healthy lifestyle to support your immune system, help your body detox, and increase energy and mental clarity. If you are over the age of 40 and you'd like to kick fatigue and brain fog to the curb this year, visit shopc60.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS for 15% off your first order and start taking back control over your health today. The products I use, I use their C60 in organic, MCT coconut oil. They have it in various different flavors. They also have sugar-free gummies that are made with allulose and monk fruit. They also have carbon 60 and organic avocado and extra virgin olive oil. When it's combined with these fats, it absorbs more effectively. And carbon 60 is great as a natural energizing tool because it really helps your mitochondria optimize your energy production. Now, if you take it late at night, for some individuals, it may seem a little bit stimulating. So that's why we recommend taking it earlier in the day, and it will give you that great energy, that great great mental clarity that you want all day long. It will help reduce the effects of oxidative stress and aging and really help you thrive. So again, guys, go to shopc60.com. Use the coupon code JOCKERS to save 15% off your first order and start taking back control of your health today. Well, welcome back to the podcast. We've got a great topic today. It's on food sensitivities that drive leaky gut and autoimmunity. I get so many questions about different food sensitivities. And so we're going to dive into that in great detail today. And our guest is the best-selling author, Dr. Peter Osborne. He is the best-selling author of No Grain, No Pain, He's often referred to as the gluten-free warrior, and he's one of the most sought-after alternative and nutritional experts in the world. He's been on our podcast multiple times and always love our conversations with him. He is one of the world's leading authorities on gluten sensitivity. He lectures nationally to both the public as well as doctors on that topic and many other nutritionally-related topics. He's the founder of the Gluten-Free Society, the author of The Gluten-Free Health Solution, and the Glutenology Health Matrix. And he's got a lot of, lot of great content. If you look up Gluten-Free Society, he's got a lot of great content there. And again, we're going to go into great detail on food sensitivities. So you're going to really get a masterclass in that today. So without further ado, we'll jump into the interview. However, if you have not left us a five-star review on Apple iTunes, wherever you listen to this podcast, now is the time to do that. Just go to Apple iTunes, scroll to the bottom. That's where you can leave the five-star review. When you do that, it helps us reach more people and impact more lives with this message. Thanks so much for doing that. And let's go into the show. 
Well, Dr. Osborne, always great to talk with you. I know you're an expert when it comes to clinical nutrition and food sensitivities. This is something you see in your practice all the time. So one of the common questions that people ask is, what is the difference between a food allergy and a food sensitivity, right? Because some people will confuse that term and they constantly will say food allergy, but there is a difference. Yeah, great question. I think um, the important thing to understand is any of the people watching, if you've been to an allergist and they did like a skin prick test or even a blood test, what they were measuring for was allergy. Now, allergy is specifically defined as an IgE-mediated response. So this is a type of antibody that generally will cause very acute symptoms. Most people know when they're allergic to something because they feel it you know, within uh, a three-hour window. So from immediate, there's, a, there's this window of reaction on, an, on what's called an IgE-mediated or an acute allergy, and that is a immediate to three hours is the window. So symptoms like swelling of the lips, urticaria, hives, wheels, um, swelling, watery, teary, itchy eyes. These are all things that are super common. If you've ever known someone with like a peanut allergy and they ate a peanut or got exposed to peanut and they were in the hospital and they pumped them full of epinephrine, that's an allergy. Okay, now in the same category under allergy, there's something known as a subacute allergy, which is it's the symptoms are not quite as aggressive because when you're, if you ever look at an IgE lab test, they grade an allergy response with six classes of grades, right? So there's, you could have no response, which would be zero. And then you could have anywhere from a one to a six, six being the highest, right? So six would be like that anaphylactic type of reaction, a four or a five grade. Those would be not quite anaphylactic, but still quite severe. But grades one, two, and three, we put in a subacute category. And this will cause symptoms that aren't always immediately aggressively obvious or life-threatening. So things like elevated heart rate, because what happens with an acute allergy is it, is it cranks up your adrenaline. So your heart rate would go up, your blood pressure might go up. You might see a kid bouncing off the walls, right, with, with their behavior because of that type of response. So again, allergy that, that we have, you know, severe, and then we have subacute, and then we have sensitivity. Now, sensitivity is a different wheelhouse altogether. There are multiple ways the immune system reacts to food. So we just said acute allergy is IgE. Now, mm -hmm. now a delayed allergy or really technically a sensitivity can be caused by an elevation in IgG, IgM, IgA. There's also something called an immune complex. And then there's another reaction called a T cell response. Uh, and then there are others, but these are the kind of five big categories of what can be measured in a lab setting. Um, and these are more of a window of three hours to three weeks. So now we're not talking about, hey, I ate this and my lips swelled and I, and I immediately had problems or symptoms. We're talking about, I ate this, it created just a persistent ongoing level of inflammation. And I might not have felt it to the severe degree that I would feel an acute allergy. And so this is why it is sometimes it's subtle and it can be hard to detect. So I know a lot of people will try to do like an elimination diet and elimination diets are great. I think that's a great place to start because it's free and you should be paying attention to how you feel when you eat your food. But a lot of times this, the sensitivities will not be found through elimination diets and they really need to be laboratory tested for because this is a hurdle many people hit when they're trying to overcome their autoimmune problem or their leaky gut problem, 
is they don't they, they no longer know which foods they should be avoiding they've cut out what's obvious but but they're still struggling right and so this is where sensitivities come in again it's a, just a much longer window and the and the reaction is typically subtle consistent persistent inflammation and so that might look mm. like joint pain that just won't go away that might look like why do i have these skin rashes that are just constant and persistent it you know why do i have this constant ache in my gi tract or this constant heartburn like even though even though i fast or even though i i do things properly and that again it's it's a low level of inflammation just slowly erodes your body's resources and makes you sicker and sicker over time so th those are the two main kind of differences yeah for sure and and what are what are the most common food sensitivities that you see number one gluten i mean hands down i mean i i would argue that gluten um, anyone with an autoimmune condition needs to be gluten free. I, at least that's what I've seen clinically. I don't. I'm, I'm sure you have probably a similar, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, experience with it. But gluten is is number one. Dairy is number two. Uh, sugar is number three. You know, actually processed sugar, which isn't good for you anyway. Yeah. But again, a lot of people need to have a test to show them, hey, this is black and white. You need to you need to avoid that. And then beyond that, it's 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 very much unique to the person. I mean, one of the stories I, I talk a lot about is the story of Ginger, who um, I wrote about her in my book. She was nine years old and had a terminal diagnosis. She had six months to live, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Hmm. And um, she was allergic, or not, I say allergic, she was sensitive to blueberries. And every morning her mom would hmm. feed her a blueberry smoothie because blueberries are superfoods, right? And, and they're anti-inflammatory yeah. and they have so many great benefits. But in her case, they were part of her problem. So that's pretty random. If you think about, okay, blueberries, most people don't know, okay, I don't, they don't even suspect a food like blueberries or broccoli, right? Or Brussels sprouts or something like that. Uh, and have people reactive to beef and people reactive to chicken or eggs, um, sometimes different nuts. So it's, it's very unique to the individual. But I'd say if you're just guessing at where to start, maybe you don't have the, the, the doctor to run the test, um, start with gluten, start with dairy, start with sugar. Those three things probably will make you feel tremendously better just by avoiding. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there's a common phrase that we use in natural medicine. One man's, one man's superfood may be another man's poison, right? And so, um, you know, again, the idea of superfoods, we typically are, are, are calling it that based on the nutritional content but not how the body's immune system is responding to it. And that's really what we're focusing on today is not nutritional element of the food, but the, the way the immune system is responding to it. And uh, you can have, you know, amazing nutritious food like an egg, which is, you know, incredibly nutritious for your body. But if your immune system is reacting to it, it's not going to be good for you. You're going to get a net negative when you put that in your body. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so, uh, you know, there's a common diet out there that a lot of people that are in, on an auto that have autoimmunity or chronic inflammation use. It's the paleo autoimmune diet, right? It eliminates a lot of a lot of different common triggers. Um, what have you seen with that? Have you seen good results using that? Um, I so I don't I don't use specific generalized diets in my practice. I now in my online community, I, I encourage people you know, to, to avoid those three. I, so, so like our no grain, no pain diet is, is dairy yeah. free, sugar free, grain free, not just gluten, um, but yeah. all grains, uh, as well in, in the deeper phases of the diet, we eliminate things like nightshades and, 
uh, in eggs and, and other things. But uh, but that's just gener generic advice. Anybody who comes to see me in my practice, I test, right? I, you know, my motto is test, don't guess. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're especially if, if if you're at a point where you've already guessed as well as you can on your own, like I'm not going to guess better than a person who lives in their own body, feels what they feel every day. So um, I, I always run the testing. You know, as far as AIP diets like AIP, autoimmune paleo, I mean, they're great places to start again. But a lot of people come to they come to me are already on that diet, and that's mm -hmm. where they're that's where they're frustrated is that they're already really restrictive in that because there's a lot of restriction in that. And so my my thought is, uh, sometimes we have to restrict to expand, but why restrict more than what's necessary? And so just again, a large overwhelming restrictive diet sometimes can seem daunting. And it's really hard for a lot of people, one, to overcome and just even kind of comply to that. Um, you know, they got families and social <laughs> social things they want to do, and that, that can really, really challenge them. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't make those changes if they feel better doing it, but testing is, in my opinion, the best option if you're hitting a roadblock. And what, there's a lot of different testing options out there. I know there's some popular tests like the Alcat test. There's IgG, uh, IgM testing. There's testing with the food, you know, just straight up testing with the food cooked. There's a lot of different methods. There's a lot of different uh, kind of lab testing strategies. What what have you found looking at, you know, a number of them? What have you found to be, in a sense, the most effective? We use a technology called lymphocyte response, LRA, lymphocyte response assay. And um, what it measures, it, it does a few different things. Number one, it measures IgG, IgA, IgM, immune, something called an immune co complex and something called a T-cell response. But it also, it's a live analysis. So you're actually watching the lymphocyte respond in real time. So you can see a reaction uh, as it's occurring. And, and so as you subject the cells to different types of you know, food reagents, you get a much more accurate representation of what a person is gonna react to. There's some flaws with some of the antibody tests because um, antibodies, you can make an antibody to a food or to a external mm -hmm. substance and it can be a protective antibody and not necessarily a damaging antibody. And so a lot of the IgG tests come back and it, it's not that they can't be accurate or helpful, it's that they can give you an overwhelming list of food reactions. So, so like, you know, the average person that I see that runs an LRA, they may have 10 to 15 reactions, you know, to foods. Mm -hmm. um, IgG testing, you'll get like 50, 60 reactions on a person. And so now, again, it goes mm -hmm. back into over restriction because these IgG tests do not differentiate between friendly or damaging antibodies. Mm -hmm. And that's where, again, diet restriction is already hard. Let's make it less hard, but let's do let's make it more accurate for the patient to to you know to embark on diet change without feeling so overwhelmed that they, that it that it seems impossible. Yeah, yeah. So that's really good. So LRA lymphocyte reaction response LRA, lymphocyte response. response assay response assay. Yep. So really good, really good uh, information there. Now, how about home testing? People will do things like muscle testing, pulse testing, things like that. Have you seen, you know? Have you seen any sort of uh, positive positive results with that? I mean, I don't do muscle testing. I trained in it. I actually mm -hmm. trained with the creator of muscle testing yeah. years ago. And um, what I found was it's subjective testing. And it's not that it can't be helpful. There are a lot of people that have been helped by muscle testing. But what I find is it changes too radically quick. 
And, um, and so what you get is you get, okay, this week you're reactive to this, next week you're reactive to that. And, it, and it's just a lot of bouncing around with, without a consistency and a reliability. The immune system has a six month life cycle. This is another reason why I like lymphocyte response. Um, it's because when we test someone, we, we see a reaction we know that reaction is going to be there as long as the life of that lymphocyte is there. So, so you know, generally speaking, when we take somebody um, on a on a restrictive diet based on their test results, it's not a permanent restriction. It's a six to eight month restriction because we know we're going to recycle the immune system in that process. On the other side of recycling the immune system, the immune system when it when those new cells come along, they're less angry. Remember what autoimmune disease is. It's like post-traumatic stress of the immune system. Your immune system is, is attacking food. It's attacking the environment. It's attacking you. And it's very angry and it's very prone and quick to reactions. So we have to calm that down, right? And that first generation of cells, if we can calm that down, then the next daughter cells that come along, that next generation will be a lot less aggressive. And this is what I meant earlier by we, we restrict to expand. So we restrict initially, and then we're able to come back a lot of times after that initial restriction and, and it re-expand their diet because their immune systems are more tolerable to things. The immune system shouldn't overreact to food, right? Like that, yeah. our immune systems are designed to handle most things, but it's we're so subjected to so many dangerous chemicals and toxins, preservatives, pesticides, um, that people's and, and drugs too. So many people rely on medicines to, to mimic their or to, to to treat their symptoms and don't realize that drugs damage the immune system and jam, damage the GI tract. So you end up with basically a collection of allergies and sensitivities over time that um, now you, now the act of eating becomes an act of war. And so your immune system is always on high alert. So again, I, I know that wasn't exactly your question. You were asking about muscle testing and some of these other things. I just don't rely on those because my opinion of those is that they're just too subjective to base major decisions on for long periods of time. And that type of data changes too radically. It's too different. Even when I trained in applied kinesiology, um, my instructor, I would watch him get different results in the same person within a 10 minute time frame. And that, like to me, that was just not objectively acceptable as a means to use clinically and, and feel comfortable about the accuracy. Yeah, that makes sense. And and typically by the time people are getting to somebody like you, they've tried a lot of these different elimination diets, a lot of different strategies to kind of try to figure out and they've eliminated a lot of you know things and they've tried a whole bunch of different supplements and then they're like I can't figure this out. So they go in for you and and they really need that objective testing, right? So they know exactly what to do. That's it. That's it. Objectivity is is people never come to me first. They always come to me like fifth, sixth, twelfth, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so you're saying, okay, so the immune system has that six to eight uh, month life cycle. So when somebody comes in, they get tested, you know, 10 foods or whatever it is, blueberries are on there. They come off these foods for for six to eight months. How, how, do, you, how do you go about the testing strategy? Yeah, so we, we make a recommendation at least six months. And then it's based on follow-up, depending on, you know, as they come back in and, and we're following up and we're seeing, you know, what, how they're progressing along, if they're, if they're doing fantastically well and they're ready to reintroduce some foods, we'll retest those foods and make sure you, they're not still reacting to those foods because mm. these are delayed hypersensitivity reactions. Remember, the window is three hours to three weeks and the symptoms are not always super aggressive. So I don't want them to, I don't want to just tell them, hey, yeah, go ahead and reintroduce it and hope for the yeah. best. We, we, again, objectivity is, is the rule of thumb. So 
we retest them for the foods they'd like to reintroduce back into their diets. And if they're no longer reacting, then, you know, they get, they get, they get the green light. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Now, what, a lot of people are, are wondering, why does somebody develop a reaction to a blueberry, right? Or to beef, but then, you know, not to, let's say, you know, on the test, it doesn't show up that they're testing to rice or to uh, corn or something along those lines. You know, everybody's unique and different. And a lot of times what what we do sometimes correlate is when their guts, when their guts are leaking, they're reacting predominantly to the staple foods of choice that they have, hmm. right? So if they're, you know, uh, if they're a beef junkie, you know, and all they eat is, or a lot of what they eat is beef or broccoli or, you know, whatever it might be, we oftentimes will see those reactions showing up. Again, it's because their guts are leaking. Remember behind the gut, you have the largest conglomeration of immune tissue that exists inside your entire body. It's called the GALT, the gastro-associated lymphoid tissue. So if your gut's leaking, then those proteins from those foods are just basically bombarding your gut and not being properly checked by the barrier of the gut. There's four barriers in your gut that that are act like gates, right? So it's like, hey, the first gate, yeah, you look good, come on in. The second gate, yeah, you look good, keep coming until they access the bloodstream. But when there's a leaky gut, those gate guards are on vacation, they're gone. And so now those foods are just bombarding the immune system and the immune system's like, how did these guys get here? They don't belong in this party. Um, they haven't been checked and they haven't been appropriately tagged. We have to react against everything. And so whatever's coming through the pipeline is is what we're going to see a lot of reactions to typically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So typically it's what you're eating a lot of. Like in Ginger's case, she was doing a blueberry smoothie every morning. She had a leaky gut. She already had a, a an immune system that was on overdrive that, was, that had PTSD like you were talking about where she had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. So it was going crazy. Um, and she's eating blueberries every day. So it's no wonder why it would react to the blueberries. Yeah. And, and then add to that, she was on methotrexate, which is a drug mm -hmm. that destroys the lining of the GI tract. So she had no hope for healing a leaky gut, even with diet change, as long as she was dependent on that drug. And a lot of people don't realize this, realize this but like simple medicines like ibuprofen, right? Antibiotics, right. aspirin, um, you know, over-the-counter Advil, Tylenol. These are drugs that you know, when you rely on them on a consistent, I'm not saying if you took it once, but like if you rely on these things yeah. day in and day out, they slowly erode the mucosal barrier in your GI tract. So mm -hmm. they remove one of the gates, right? And then they make it easier for other things to go wrong. So you have to really look at, at, at your pharmaceutical closet as well. And this is where a lot of people are trapped because they, they got, you know, medicine after medicine, they, they got an initial medicine to treat their symptoms, whether it's pain or whatever it might be. And then the drug caused damage in another way. That's what we call risk benefit. There's a there's a benefit yeah. to the drug suppressing symptoms, but there's a risk of what the drug's going to do to the body over time. And now the doctor's treating the symptoms the drug caused with a new drug, right? And so this this kind of getting trapped in that polypharmacy um, is what allows a lot of people to really progressively get worse. And they think they're doing the right thing. Their doctor prescribed these things. It must be the right thing to do. When in reality it's a it's a slow trap it's a trick i always look yeah. at pharmaceuticals as as uh, pseudo compassionate right because it's a false compassion why because a doctor that gives you a drug to try to make you feel better there's compassion there but yeah. when when they're doing it without telling you why your symptoms exist there's no compassion there they're actually setting you up for failure it's it's like your kids 
if you just told your kids what to do all the time, but never taught them or educated them and 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 kind of helped them navigate how to make good decisions, then they would go out into the world and they would be, you know, they would rely on you for the rest of their lives, right? They wouldn't be able to spread their wings and fly. And this is what happens in medicine all the time is doctors make you dependent on symptomatic resolution through chemistry. And unfortunately, the side effects of that leads to more of that. And people don't even realize that that's actually some of the biggest inducers of autoimmune disease mm. are drugs that destroy the, the gut. Yeah, absolutely. And, and many of the symptoms that people are experiencing that are driven by food sensitivities, they're taking medications for those headaches, migraines, acid reflux, things like that. And I know a big, a big class, class of drugs that's commonly used are heartburn medications. And that can actually, you know, very much induce food sensitivities and leaky gut as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, 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 you know, beyond even that, you get the drug induced nutritional deficiencies, Yeah, you know, that, that happen. And so now, the medicine is treating the symptom, but the drug is causing vitamin and mineral deficiencies that lead to the same symptom that the medicine's treating. Mm. And so now the patient's like, well, the medicine quit working, give me a new medicine. And then, you know, again, it, it just stacks and layers and now they're malnourished, their guts are destroyed and they can't heal because your body requires vitamins and minerals to heal. Like those are the building blocks for repair. And if you're, and if you're causing deficit of those things through you know, through polypharmacy, then good luck. It's it's just not going to happen very effectively. Yeah, for sure. And and the autoimmunity that somebody may be experiencing, or the chronic inflammation, is really the body doing the best it can to keep you alive right now, because it's seeing all these chemicals, bacteria, bacterial end products, all these inflammatory agents that it sees as a risk for, in a sense, a a, a quick death, right? Something, some sort of infection that could get into your nervous system, cause meningitis, cause encephalitis or pneumonia. And so it's trying to drive up overall immune activity so you don't get this, you know, life-threatening infection. In the meantime, you're living for 10, 15, 20, 30 years with incredible joint pain from, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or um, osteoarthritis or, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And so your immune system is doing the best it can to keep you alive, right? And what we've got to do is kind of teach the immune system that, hey, you're not in a life-threatening situation by um, healing and sealing the gut, addressing those nutrient deficiencies, right? Addressing all of those types of things. Now, when it came to somebody like Ginger, for example, you talked about earlier, you started, obviously, you did this test, you found food sensitivities, right? You removed those. Um, and so you kind of customized the diet there. Now, what were the other things that you were doing to help her heal? So she was also gluten sensitive. Um, yeah. You know, one of her other foods that she was eating a lot of was rice. Mm. And, um, if you, so if you want to get into this, but rice by law, by FDA definition is labeled, can be labeled as gluten free. Although technically rice has a form of gluten in it called orzenin which in my experience does plenty of damage to people who have gluten issues. So a lot of people that go gluten-free, but they include rice as part of their staple replacement, don't do well. As a matter of fact, there are five-year follow-up studies that show that 92% of people following a traditional gluten-free diet fail to, to achieve the inflammatory remission in their GI tracts. And these are studies done on celiac patients. And uh, when, you, when you remove the rice and the corn and the other grains, guess what happens? They achieve the remission and there's there are a number of research studies that show this i've seen this you know for 22 years in my clinic 
So in her case, rice was one of the things. She was already on a gluten-free diet traditionally, but she hadn't um, omitted the rice. And so we, we also did that. She also had several vitamin and mineral deficiencies. We test for deficiencies. And so those were things that we supplemented and, and made sure that she was eating the proper foods that contained the nutrients that she was lacking. And, and in her case, she was, you know, she was at, she had a permanent port embedded in her arm because she was in and out of the hospital so often for pain management treatment. Um, within six months, that port came out. Now she was supposed to be dead within six months. That port came out. And then within another six months, she was in total remission. And this was one, you know, one of my first patients in private practice. So mm-hmm. today she's gone on, she's graduated college, she's out in the world, um, you know, doing great things Amazing. and having a family and everything else. So, you know, um, Autoimmune disease, it's, it's a scary thing. You know, it's, it's, you know, if we look at autoimmune disease, 140 of them, and, you know, most doctors will, will tell you, you know, because we separate them out, that, it, that autoimmune disease is, doesn't have all that great of a mortality risk. But in fact, autoimmune disease, number one cause of death, if you add up all the autoimmune diseases and you compare that to cancer and heart disease, you're going to see a lot more people dying com- of combination mm-hmm. autoimmune disease. Uh, unlike, you know, Unlike cancer and heart disease, they clump all the cancers together. They clump all the heart diseases together, but they don't do that with autoimmune disease. So it's like the redheaded stepchild of the industry, right? It doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Um, Autoimmune disease is not 140 conditions. Autoimmune disease is one condition. It is an underlying pathological process that occurs in people and affects them where they're weakest. And so whether you have rheumatoid arthritis, it's affecting your joints. Maybe you have Hashimoto's, it's affecting your thyroid. Maybe you have you know, autoimmune hepatitis, it's affecting your liver, or maybe you have eczema or psoriasis, it's affecting your skin. Like it will affect you where you're weakest. And mm-hmm. most people with autoimmune disease, if they don't figure it out, they will go on to develop six more forms of autoimmune disease in their lifetime on average. So this is why, this is one of the reasons why we know autoimmune disease is not 140 distinct diseases. It is a process. And uh, the more it wait, the more it tears you down, the more of these different diagnoses you're going to get. And this is a problem with medicine is that they look at, you know, individuals and, and, and they, you know, you get a heart doctor that specializes in heart. You get a skin doctor specializing only in skin. You get an endocrinologist specializing in like thyroid. And so you go to all these experts who are like this, right? They can't see the forest through the trees and they haven't been properly trained in autoimmune disease to understand that it's a process and not, you know, not this doom and gloom, like, most of them will tell you, this is a disease. We don't know why it happens. Here's your drug. Take it for the rest of your life and, and just come back in six months and we'll monitor you instead of saying, this is a disease. We know what the triggers are. Um, we're going to measure for, for your triggers and we're going to change your diet and lifestyle. It's because they're not trained in diet and lifestyle. And autoimmune disease is a disease of choice. Just like diabetes, very clear. It's a disease of choice. You can have predispositions genetically, but at the end of the day, the four triggers of autoimmune disease, number one is food, number two is chemical exposure, number three is microbial imbalance, and number four is nutritional deficiency. Now, some would say you can throw in a number five, which is stress, like emotional, or and, and that's true, but most people are stressed because they can't figure out why they're sick, and the stress is not what caused them to become sick. And, and when they go to the doctors and the doctors can't figure it out, the doctor blames stress and sends them to a shrink, you know, to get, you know, to get Paxil or Prozac or something like that. But there are four triggers that your audience needs to yeah. be aware of. And, and that that's what can be measured objectively so that you can make the meaningful changes to your diet and lifestyle to avoid those triggers. 
I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast is sponsored by our friends at Paleo Valley. They make the most powerful, pure vitamin C supplement you can get. Because unlike most vitamin C supplements containing synthetic ingredients that are created in the lab, Paleo Valley Essential C Complex is made from three of the most potent whole food sources of vitamin C on the planet. Nothing weird, just food. Check them out at paleovalley.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS, J-O-C-K-E-R-S, to get 15% off today. What are, the, what are the most common nutritional deficiencies that you're seeing with people with autoimmunity? B12, vitamin D, zinc, omega-3 fatty acids, and iron are, are mm. five of the most top common that, that I see in practice. Yeah. And iron, you got to be careful with because you also have people that have too much iron, right? Or, in a, you know, in a sense, they have high ferritin, they have high serum iron, which can cause more oxidative stress. So definitely important that it gets measured. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, one of the issues with gluten, you know, and autoimmune disease, I've never seen a case of autoimmune disease where the patient wasn't gluten sensitive. Yeah. I mean, maybe they exist, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, that being the case, one of the most common side effects of, of gluten damage to the GI tract is it damages the areas of the stomach and the areas of the intestine where iron is absorbed. And so that's one of the reasons why we'll see that iron coming mm. down. And sometimes what, what we get is you get a confusing result where their iron is low, their hemoglobin hematocrit are low, but their ferritin is high. And so, so it's important to understand that ferritin, high, high ferritin doesn't mean you're iron overloaded. High ferritin mm -hmm. can also mean that you're just inflamed. It's, it's also yeah. ferritin is what's called an acute phase reactant protein. So when you're inflamed, sometimes the ferritin is what we see elevated. And that doesn't mean you can't take iron as a supplement if your iron levels are low. Right. It's why you got to look at serum iron. You got to look at all the different, the whole iron lab for it. Yeah. Right. And, and how about magnesium? Are you seeing that commonly deficient? Yeah, it's pretty common. It's not as common as those other five, at least not in mm -hmm. my experience. I know, I know um, some people would probably disagree and say that the reason we're not finding magnesium deficiencies is because there's no perfect test for it. And I, and I would mm -hmm. agree with that. I mean, we use lymphocyte proliferation to look at, you know, intracellular vitamin status and mineral status. Some people will use red blood cell magnesium, which is a good test too. Um, but most doctors will use serum magnesium, which is an awful test. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the body regulates serum levels very tightly. So you're not typically going to see a low or a high of magnesium in the serum per se, but intracellularly, you definitely can pick it up. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you had mentioned chemical exposure. What are some of the most common chemicals that people are testing out to be high in or environments that they're living in that, that are driving chronic inflammation and autoimmunity? I get a lot of DEET like mosquito spray mm, stuff. Um, yeah. We get a lot of the chemicals found in sunscreens. Phthalates mm. are common, you know, especially women, cosmetics and plastic water bottles are big sources of phthalate. Um, so we see a lot of people reacting to those. Not that those, I mean, look, those things aren't good for you anyway, but yeah. you know, now we're getting, we're eating something or being exposed to something we know isn't good for us, but we also have an immunological reaction mm. against it. It's like a double hit, but yeah. those are some of the more common ones. Yeah, because there's two ways the body can respond. One is it has, you know, an, a, an immune reaction to it. And that's where you know, we have, in a sense, worsening symptoms. The other is kind of a toxic load effect where we don't really notice anything until the load gets to a certain level or just, or just overloads our, our natural detoxification systems. And that's usually where it's like you've been exposed to something for a long period of time. 
and then you start to to respond. You know, I see this, for example, um, you know, where my team are putting together a detailed article on breast implant illness, and and we've interviewed different people uh, with this. And some women, it's like within the first five years after they get breast implants, they feel awful, right? Terrible symptoms, all all different types of issues, right? For some women, they've got them in 15, 20 years, no big issue. And it's like they hit 25 years or so, and then all of a sudden, all these different issues come. So it's kind of the difference there between the immune system uh, you know, uh, reacting pretty quickly, kind of like the the food allergy, food sensitivity, and then the other one, just a toxic load, the the constant bombardment of toxic chemicals that eventually overloads the system. Yeah, and I would even throw let's throw in a third, right? Which is uh, if we're talking about phthalates and plastics, they're they're um, endocrine disruptors. So that mm. which is not an immune reaction at all, it just disrupts the ability to right. produce hormones, and so now. You know, fast forward five years, 10 years, you've got hormone disruption uh, side effects, you know, thyroid imbalances and mm. renal imbalances, et cetera. Yeah, that's a big one. Now, how about mold and mycotoxins? Are you seeing that commonly? Very commonly. Um, you know, it's funny. It's interesting. I, I I was in mold myself, right? So a few years ago, we had a, we had a house. It was a couple of years old. And my wife is starting to get sick. My dog is really sick, right? She's like, what's wrong with our dog? We couldn't figure out what's wrong with her. She's, you know, she's a little eight pound Yorkie. And um, anyway, she's, she's, she's got organ failures happening. You know, we take her in, we get some blood work done and she's dying. We don't know why. I mean, she was in great shape and great health. Well, she died from mold, mold, mycotoxins killed her. And it was, she was the first one. She was our canary. You know, and then my wife was was second in line, um, just debilitating fatigue and um, brain fog. I, I mean, she couldn't finish a sentence. I, I I would I would I would get so frustrated with her because she would try to speak, and I knew what she wanted to say, but I wanted to be patient with her to let her give her an opportunity to say it. But I found myself completing her sentences, and I know she was really frustrated, and so and so it really deteriorated her health, and then it started to really affect me. I was the last one to really be affected heavily. But um, you know, my memory got really, really bad. I, I could, I was, I could still perform, but I was just like not fast. Like my brain works really fast, and I just found it clunky and slow and lethargic. And then I gained like twenty five pounds of fat around my abdomen. I'm like what's happening? And I was crying all the time. Like I was mm. super emotional. Uh, this was all mold, mold toxins, and uh, one of the mold toxins that we had, we had. You know, when we tested ourselves from our house, we had all five classes of mycotoxins elevated. And one of them is called xerolenone, which is a estrogen mimicking mycotoxin. So here I was being bombarded by this estrogen. And that's why I gained all that weight. And that's why I had had such an emotional swings, just severe mm-hmm. swings. So we once we figured it out, we we got the heck out of there, right? We, we actually yeah. lived in a hotel, an extended stay hotel for two months, you know, trying to figure out what to do. Um, but, but at the end of the day, our house was so moldy and it was, none of it was visible growth. It was all behind the wall cavity. And so we measured air samples behind the wall cavity. Some of our wall cavities were hundreds of thousands of spore counts high in, in black mold, chitomium, fusarium, Mm. aspergillus, and penicillium. So it's, it's, what's kind of ironic doc is that I I've been seeing chronic mold cases for 22 years. And, um, I was praying to God and I said, please, Lord, um, quit sending me chronic mole cases, right? I don't want to see any more. And, and it's not that I can't help people with them. It's that 
if you've ever had to have a conversation with a family yeah. to tell them their house is killing them, like, first of all, good luck convincing them that, that they need yeah. to get out of there, right? This is why, you know, if you do mold, you have to be super objective, mycotoxin testing, other mm -hmm. types of testing to help you understand that that is actually their problem and that's not speculative, speculatively their problem, right? And so it's just very hard conversations to have with families. So I was I was praying, look, quit, please quit sending me mold. And it was like a month later when when I had mold in my own house. So it really changed my life. It changed my perspective on things. Uh, it gave me far greater degrees of apathy and helping under, I think God gave it to me to say, you need to understand this so well that you can help guide, guide people better through it. But it's a very common problem. And, and, and one of the things that we've seen, and I've seen now, over a hundred cases of what are, what they're calling long COVID. Um, yeah. in, in every one mold has played a role. Like mm -hmm. in what happened, what I think, here's my theory. I, I think what happened was people get sick, they stay home. If their home is full of mold and they're no longer going to work and they're staying home at sick, then their exposure goes up, right? It triples because most people are out of their house. If they go yeah. to work, they're out of their house 10 plus hours a day. So now they're at home 24 seven. And so if, if the COVID, was already damaging them. And then now this mold on top of it, right? And so they can't recover and they just can't get over that hump. And we, mm. so we're seeing, we're seeing them test positive, extremely high mycotoxin levels. And so once we figure that piece out and get them out of the mold and we can get, get it cleaned up, then we see them make recoveries. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a really big issue. Now, um, are you having, are you recommending like dry fogging their home? Um, obviously in some cases people need to completely move out. Are you, are you seeing any sort of remediation type of effect type of, uh, scenarios working out? I would say this, there's two things you need to know if you, if you test positive for high mycotoxins and, and it is your house, there's two things you need to have figured out. Number one is where is it at? Where's the mold? Uh, and then number two, why did it grow? Right. Dry fogging is a waste of time if you don't know why it grew. Mm -hmm. Mold will grow be usually because there's a moisture issue. And so this could be construction defects of the home. This could be the HVAC system was improperly set and the air pressures aren't right. Uh, this could be the damper on the HVAC system is broken. So it's allowing moisture from the outside in at, at higher rates. I mean, there, there are a variety of, of things. I mean, you could have a foundation problem. You could have external like stucco homes are notorious because they, they act like wicks for the water to just pull pull the water into the home so the water can't escape the envelope of the house. I mean, there's all kinds of things. And I would say before anybody, you know, embarks upon a remediation pro process, if you don't know why the mold grew, you're wasting your money. You have to determine that first. So mm -hmm. it's it's super critical. Like in our case, I was so frustrated with the lack of objectivity that the mold inspector we had hired originally was bringing to the table. It was like, you're, I mean, you're the expert, not me. I'm not supposed to be the expert in how to find it and how to understand why it grows. You're supposed to be the expert, he, but none of them are. I mean, and what I came to find out was that to get a mold inspector license requires a weekend course. Mm. You know, so these guys are not, they're not trained. They're, I, mean, I mean, no offense to them. It's just what, what the requirement is, yeah. right? So, um, but, but most consumers aren't aware of that. They just think you hire a mold expert, they're a mold expert. They're not, um, they're an air test expert. And that's kind of like going to your doctor and getting a CBC in a, in a chemistry panel mm, right. and they're normal and you're like, oh, everything's good. No, an air test is like that. It's, you get a lot of false negatives 
on an air test because mold is very buoyant and it and it doesn't stay floating in the air. It falls to the floor. And if you're doing an air test up here, five foot above it, you can get a negative reaction or a negative uh, result. But um, you you know, if you want to know why it's growing, really for us, it required, here's what it required. I mean, it, it sounds crazy, but it, one, we had a guy, we, we hired a mold guy and a mold inspector who represented people in court trials. So we wanted to know who was the best and who could go to court and defend a case mm -hmm. um, at, so that we could trust that person at least a little bit more, knowing they're more of an expert as opposed to not, right? So we found somebody who did litigation. Um, that was one. And then we also hired an engineering firm and we hired an architect um, because we wanted to know why the mold was growing because the mold inspectors, not those things. Right. So uh, the engineering firm could come out and do certain kinds of tests to help us understand what the failure of the house build was. And so what in our case, it was it was multi multi factors. The foundation was poured improperly. Um, the brick was laid wrong. The weep holes in the brick were not active weep holes, so the water couldn't escape. Um, we had um, an issue with uh, around our windows being the seals not being properly done, so moisture was coming in. The HVAC system was a total mess, and the damper was broken. Um, so all these things kind of accumulated to allow so much water to penetrate our home that there was just no way that it wouldn't grow mold given enough time. But but that's where you know in our in our case our house is. It has to be demolished, right? So, hmm. so there was no remediation. Like to to remediate it, it had to be torn down to the studs, hmm. and then you have to, you know, to properly do it, you have to shave the studs an eighth of an inch. That like the labor intensiveness of that yeah. is so great that it's just cheaper to tear everything down and rebuild it. That that's not everyone's case. I don't I don't want to scare your audience either. Yeah, a lot of what we see, what a really common problem is in the HVAC system. Right. The HVAC system was improperly installed. And uh, so what, what's happening is that it's either pulling too much moisture from the outside in because it's not set up right, or it's too big of a unit. Um, when the units are, are larger than the square footage needs for a house, then the house cools too quickly. And, and so what happens is the reason we run HVAC, especially in the South, like in Florida, Georgia, Texas, <laughs> Alabama, Mississippi, you need to run your HVAC to re to remove the humidity from your air. Like that's one of the purposes, not just to cool the home, but it's to remove the humidity. And houses are so tightly sealed. They're being built with such great energy efficiency that these larger HVAC units cool the house so quickly that they don't run long enough to dehumidify the air. And so the air humidity goes above 55% and it stays there and and it's it's not liquid water it's water vapor but it's enough water vapor consistently to allow for mold cells to sporate and to grow and propagate so a lot of people don't realize that and they're looking for a leak you know they're looking for a roof leak or a broken mm. pipe or something like that and it's it's usually it's not that it's not unfortunately it's not that obvious usually it's a it's either a construction defect or it's an hvac system defect at least in my caseloads and in the, the people that I see. Yeah, really good information. I mean, mold is a, is a big issue. Now let's pivot quickly to the gut and uh, talk about some different infections that people may have or just dysbiosis in general and how that can trigger uh, food sensitivities as well. Yeah, number one is candida and not even just no. candida, but other, other forms of yeast. Um, what's interesting about yeast in the gut, you know, gluten causes leaky gut. We can credit Dr. Alicia Fasano at Harvard for making that, that discovery. But what a lot of people don't realize is Candida albicans produces a protein. It's called a hyphal wall protein. 
And a high, the candida hypha wall protein mimics gluten. So it looks just mm. like gluten. So your diet could be perfect, right? You could be grain-free, paleo, yeah. doing fantastic with your diet, but still struggle. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why is that candida overgrowth produces proteins that mimic gluten. So your body's still reacting as if it's being gluten or getting exposure to gluten. So that's a big one. Um, and then we see a number of different gram negative bacteria in people like Klebsiella and Pseudomonas and Citrobacter and Terobacter. These are bacteria that um, they ferment food. So one of the side effects is they, if you're a heavy carbohydrate eater, they're going to ferment your carbs into alcohol. So your gut becomes a distillery. Basically, it becomes a wine factory. And so now you're producing alcohol through eating. And that alcohol damages the lining of your gut. It also causes B vitamin deficiency. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've had patients that had this problem so severely. The name of it is called auto brewery syndrome, hmm. um, where they're drunk and, and they're stumbling and their balance is off. And I've had some with, um, with you know, they, they have hepatitis or cirrhosis mm. and their doctors are accusing them of being alcoholics and they don't drink. Yeah. They eat carbs. Right. And the, again, those carbs are what, what what's converting to alcohol. Mm. So that those are really common findings in people um, who are still struggling. Maybe they've done really well with their diet, but they have this overgrowth dysbiosis. And um, without dealing with it, they don't really reach their full mm. recovery potential. Yeah, I know candida will also produce acetaldehyde and cause kind of like a, you know, a, a brain alcohol effect. And glial toxin too, which which damages the immune cells, the immune lymphatic cells in the brain as well. Now, how about H. pylori? Are you seeing that commonly? Is that an issue here? Not as common as some. Um, I mean, I, I we test for it, but I don't. It's not something that's. I would say less than ten percent of the people I see have it. Hmm. Really? Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Because I, I I've seen it quite a bit. Um. And so, yeah. And how about parasites? What are you seeing with parasites? Um. Very few worms. Yeah, uh, mostly amoebas, like microscopic right. parasites. So, um, Blastocystis being a real common mm. one that that we see, uh, especially that one's in my experience, anyways, heavily related to rheumatological mm. arthritis. So that the parasite produces toxins that look like cartilage, and you know leads mm. to an autoimmune response. But that that's probably the more common. But I very rarely see like big balls of worms or clusters of you yeah, know yeah. round worms or hookworms or you know the, what people commonly classically think of as a parasite. They're thinking worms. We see microscopic amoebas more than anything yeah. else. Yeah, Blastocystis hominis is a common one that also can be associated with uh, with hypothyroidism or, or Hashimoto's. Yep. Yeah. Well, great. And then what sort of strategies are you using outside of just dietary change to help support the gut? Yeah, so this what we call the six non-negotiable fundamentals of recovery. Uh, the first is you have to change your diet. And so we test to determine how to change people's diets. Number two is you have to go to bed on time. Hmm. Um, you know, it's not negotiable. Your sleep and your rest is when you heal. And if you're going to bed at midnight, you, you're, you're not going to recover well. Um, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is the magic window where your body really needs that minimum four-hour window. You need more than that, but that is a minimum. So don't go to bed late. You're not going to make it up by sleeping later. Be asleep by 10. Ideally, be asleep when the sun goes down. Like if we really want to follow the nature's yeah. pattern, God's pattern of, of, of circadian rhythm, we would go to bed at, at dark and we would wake up when the light comes through the window. But not everybody's going to be able to do that in the winter when it's dark at six. 
Uh, you know, and it doesn't, the light doesn't happen until they're supposed to be at work. So you have to do your best. That's why I give that 10 to two as being ideal, like, you know, minimum window of, of opportunity for recovery. So again, food, sleep, number three is movement and motion, um, exercise too, but, but movement and motion for people who are chronically sick, oftentimes they don't tolerate exercise very well. So we start with movement motion. We, we progress into exercise to tolerance, but a movement, body movement is a requirement. Number four is sunshine. Um, you, you're not going to heal without sunshine. Um, you know, we've got this kind of rhetoric that sun causes skin cancer, which is nonsense. It's like saying water causes drowning. So don't drink it. Um, you know, sun is a net is a necessary nutrient. It's a nutrient we don't eat and, um, your body, there's so many different benefits to light. Um, but also to the, um, the, the spectrum of light that the sun provides from, you know, far and near infrared all the way up to the ultraviolet spectrum. Those are important. Those are what we call hormetic stresses that stimulate the body to heal, heal and repair and do great things for it. So you need to make sure you're getting it. And when you get it, it ideally get it naked, right? If you've got mm-hmm. privacy, go out in your backyard, be naked for 20 minutes. You know, now if you're the freckled kid with, you know, pale skin, start with incremental exposures. Don't just go out there and blast your skin. You know, it's you've got to be smart about it. You got to use common sense. But get it every day and 20 minutes is a starting point but ideally even several hours a day of sunshine would be ideal um so that's again food sleep movement exercise sunshine number five is clean air you know feel if you don't filter the air in your home you need to get your ultra fine hepa filter you know that's your best bet because you're going to be exposed to chemicals in our modern world so help your lungs and then the next is is um clean water you're 70 percent water you know, if you're drinking chemicals in your water, like fluoride, chlorine, bromine, chloramines, those aren't going to help you recover, especially uh, those of you with thyroid disease. Fluoride and, and bromine in the drinking water and chlorine in the drinking water, those inter- interfere with iodine uptake into your thyroid gland. So it makes it really hard for you to produce thyroid hormones. So um, filter your water. If you live in a city, reverse osmosis is one of the best types of filters you can use. Uh, add electrolytes back to your water, though, uh, because when you when you take all the minerals out through RO filtration, you make the water acidic, and so that has its own you know you know kinds of problems. So you can add electrolyte back in, and and you can re-neutralize your water, and that's that's a smart move. And then the last thing is manage your stress, and this is a tough one uh, because you say, what does that mean? Manage your stress. Life throws curveballs. So like like myself, I was in mold. You know, I, I've I've had my fair share of stressors. You know like everyone else. You should be able to handle those. Um, Where people really tend to fail is they create stress in their own lives because they don't set boundaries. They don't don't set self-respect boundaries and they'll let people do things to them or or, uh, around them that create tremendous ports of stress in their life. And, you know, perfect example would be a person who works a job that's just sucking their soul out of them day in and day out. Like, I get it. You have to work to take care of your family, but you need an exit strategy if you're in that kind of a situation. And that's a hard thing to think about, but you can't allow something like that to destroy your health. So you have to find something that allows you to, to feel important and feel, um, and feel like you're, you're like you're part of something, right. But that doesn't like steal from you every day. Mm. Right. Because you, yeah. if you if you grind that out thirty years and you go to retire, you're gonna you're gonna spend the last thirty years of your life fighting cancer and heart disease and everything else. So you know your relationships are super important. There are a lot of um, there are a lot of people out there 
in, in all of our families that aren't good people. I mean, you know, I have them, you probably have them. Um, and you have to set up boundaries around those types of people. I call them human mm -hmm. vampires. You, you know, mm -hmm. a relationship is a give and a take. It's not a take, 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 take. And so this is a source of a lot of people's stress that I see in the modern society. And so we have those conversations with our patients. Look, you, you have to set kind of boundaries up around yourself to protect your integrity so that you have a, a, an environment that's safe that you can heal and you can recover in. So again, those, those strategies, food, exercise, sleep, sunshine, clean air, clean water, and stress management um, are the things that you really wanna set up. They're not negotiable. Your body won't won't work if you don't do your best in those seven areas. So that's those are all easy. Those are all free, right? You can yeah. you can start those today. Yeah, great, really great information, really great practical steps right there, guys. Check out Dr. Osborne Gluten Free Society, and if they want to work with you, is it Origins Healthcare? What what's Origins, the name? Origins Healthcare. They can come check me out at drpeterosborne.com and and learn more about Origins there. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for your time, Dr. Osborne. Always love uh, our conversations. So many great nuggets for people. And uh, guys, definitely check out Gluten Free Society. Check out Dr. Osborne's website. And we'll see you on a future interview. Be blessed, everybody. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.